who would you say is the most famous magician of today? Now, when I was younger, I would have said it was David Copperfield. That was not his name. <laughs> because, I, what can I say? When I do these things, I, I look up, if I'm going to be referencing somebody, I look them up. And, and uh, if you don't remember his act, he made things disappear. First thing I remember him disappearing was a car on stage. But it, that was too small an ambition for him. So the next one was a Learjet, okay? Out on a runway. Gone. The next thing was a Statue of Liberty. Now, I'm going to guess that that was a camera angle just, just between you and me, uh, because last I saw the uh, Statue of Liberty was still in the harbor there. I hadn't heard of him in a while, and so I looked him up to see if he was still alive. Uh, it turns out that he's three years younger than I am and very much alive. I'm now afraid to look myself up on the internet to see if I'm still alive. I might not like the answer. I guess Penn and Teller are, are the most famous magicians of today. A few years ago, and because I don't go to Las Vegas and I really don't watch these shows on TV, but Penn and Teller came on TV and they were doing, uh, uh, Penn, Penn Gillette was doing an act and I know that magicians tell you that there is no magic, that what they do is misdirection and sleight of hand. And I know that you're not supposed to, if they look somewhere and look that direction, you're supposed to wash their hands. And so on this show, I watched, I did not blink watching his hands. And when he would misdirect you towards a teller or something, I didn't fall for it. And yeah. They still did things that I have absolutely no idea how they did it. Just, it was not misdirection. It was something else. What can I say? Because I was watching. When Aaron and I were first married, the first family dinner we went to was at one of my cousins, actually my mom's cousins, but they were my age, in Santa Barbara. We were there and his and I looked this up too, his 13 to 14 year old son, this cousin's son, was doing magic tricks. And he was pretty good for a 13 or 14 year old. Like, uh, according to his Magipedia page, believe it or not, there is such a thing, a Wikipedia page for magicians, uh, he was earning $50 a week at this time that I that he did it for me, entertaining at kids' birthday parties. He's now a famous magician. Uh, Robert Gallup, Extreme Magic. I caught something he did on television once where shackled head, hand and foot, blindfolded, put in a lock cage, taken up to 18,000 feet without a parachute, and thrown out uh, of a plane. And he had, at 18,000 feet, you had three minutes to get out of that. The parachute was strapped to the outside of the cage, okay, so it wasn't with, entirely without a parachute. So anyway, that, that's his magic. And the kid grew up to do this, which is very amusing to me. I, I will say amusing. Uh, so who's the most famous magician of all time? I think most people would say Harry Houdini. I would guess that, but they would be wrong. Uh, the most famous magician of all time, but not necessarily for his magic, 
is the fellow we'll be looking at today, Simon, Simon the Magician, Simon, if you prefer, the Sorcerer, another name that he goes by, or as history calls him now, Simon Magus, unless it's Magus, M-A-G-U-S, huh. Acts 8, 9-13 says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this is our introduction to Simon, the magician. He shows up only here in the New Testament, in these few verses. But it's not the only place he shows up in history. Extra-biblical writing, histories, show him constantly. And though this appearance in Scripture is brief, not so his influences in early Christianity... Magicians were well known in the ancient world. One of the most uh, beloved portions of the Bible, the nativity story, as shown by here in Matthew 2, goes partially as such. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people in Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream... Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men that this passage describes are often in other versions called magi. 
magicians. It comes from a, uh, the Persian priesthood. The Midian priesthood were called magi. But magi were more than magicians, or maybe less than magicians. It's hard to say. Philo, uh, the Hellenistic Jewish uh, philosopher who lived from 20 BC to 50 AD, so he was a, a contemporary with everything we have going on here. So when Philo is commenting on something, it's not something in the past. Philo is talking about the present being Jesus' day. Philo points out that there were two types of magic and two types, therefore, of magicians. Quote, a respectable science of discernment tied to Persian magi and kings and, quote, an adulterated species full of quacks, charms, and incantations. Okay? And that's from uh, Daryl Bach, one of the commentators who's... uh, commentaries I own. Philo went on to say, the true magic is felt to be a fit object for reverence and ambition and is carefully studied not only by ordinary persons but by kings and the greatest kings. But there is a counterfeit of this pursued by charlatans, mendicants, and parasites and the basis of the women and slave population. Okay. Now, as a Christian, I will take exception to something being called true magic, as, as, um, as Philo did here. But suffice it to say that uh, magi studied the stars, as per the nat- nativity account. And if you think about it, you know, what was going on in the stars at night was of immense importance to them. Because mm, what else was going on at night? Okay, so so they really knew everything that was going on in the heavens. But uh, they also pursued other subjects that made themselves useful to the kings that ruled over them. John MacArthur says that the uh, magi, the that the magic as performed by those called the magi. Quote, was a mix of science and superstition combining astrology, divination, and occultic practices with history, mathematics, and agriculture. It could be trickery or demonic. So where did Simon Magus fit into this spectrum? Verse 9a says... But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. And on the John MacArthur scale, I would say he fell down on the side of trickery or demonic, okay? I don't think he was one of our noble practitioners like the Magi of Persia. Saying Simon previously practiced magic does not imply here that he had stopped practicing magic. Just that previous to Philip coming to Samaria, he had already been practicing magic. Simon very much was still practicing magic. His magic was not a practice of wisdom that edified his fellow citizens, but tricks that amazed them. Just as I can be amazed by 
Penn Jillette's sleight of hand with the cards. I remember Niels went through this magic phase when he was about nine or ten. And my brother-in-law, who was who is a college professor but would recreate once a week by playing Texas Hold'em. Anyway, Niels wanted to play cards with him and uh, dealt the cards out. And he dealt my brother-in-law four kings. Couldn't tell how he did it. And my brother-in-law looked at me and he said, I can't beat four aces, so I'm not playing with you. <laughs> so anyway, I am also amazed at sleight of hand. But verse 9b goes on. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Um, Though Simon amazed the people of Samaria, he seemed to be his own biggest fan. He said that he himself was somebody great. He was full of himself and full of pride. Here's a general rule of thumb. If you have to tell people how great you are, you're probably not all that great, right? Let the people say it themselves if so. And verse 10 goes, They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. So let's start at the end of this part first. This man is the power of God that is called great. The better read for this, as other translations say, is this man is the great power of God. The phrase, that phrase, great power of God, is a Samaritanism. It was common in their uh, dialogue, meaning that he is claiming to be God. He is claiming divinity with that power. Note that, well, and you might say, well, he didn't say it. The people said it. Well, he didn't deny it, okay? He went along with being called God. That was, John MacArthur says he might really have thought his magic was real. And he might have thought that he had a spark of divinity in him. Be that as it may. When they called him God, he did not turn that down. He is happy to have the citizens of Samaria say that he is God. It brings him more attention, more, no, more notoriety. They, they all paid attention to him, says, rich and poor, old and young, educated and illiterate. It's what our celebrities of today, whether they're rock stars or actors or um, politicians or social influencers and I say those words with a, with a sneer even though social influencers may be a step above politicians. Anyway, this is what, what they live for. They live for the attention. I don't think that they're... Uh, the money is nice. The private jets are nice. The Rolls Royces are nice. But they like the attention. Have you ever been somewhere, and this is for the moment, so I'm going to have to find this, where you were with a a celebrity you didn't know. Because Aaron and I, one time were invited out to Benahanas. This is when we lived in the San Fernando Valley. Benahanas had just started, and it was the place where all the stars went to. And they seat you at a communal table for the chefs to do their little thing, right? 
And Aaron and I are sitting there with my archaeologist friend and his wife, and two other people, young, young people. And I mean, when I say young, I was 24, okay? But the girl was probably 18, 19. And, and as the meal went on, she got, she got more agitated at her boyfriend. Well, when we finished the meal and left, my uh, archaeologist buddy said, do you know who we were sitting with? I said, no. And she said, we, we were sitting with Christy McNichol. She was a teenage actress in the age. She wasn't upset at her boyfriend. She was taking it out on her boyfriend. Aaron and I had no, we didn't watch TV. We had no idea who she was. And we paid no attention to these 18-year-olds at our table. The attention, the lack of attention bothered them it's what they live for not their art not in the case of politicians to do good but to have people pay attention to them that is also what Simon Magus craved was the attention verse 11 says and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic He got from the people what he wanted most. He got their acclaim and their attention. His magic skills amazed everyone and had for a long time, it says. For for anyone willing to be called the great power of God, or God for short, this was what he craved. But as anyone who has been the talk of the town knows, staying at the top of the heap forever is impossible. And the problem with being a counterfeit power of God is when the real power of God comes to town. Okay? And Simon is suddenly faced with that. Philip never claimed to be the power of God himself, but in healing the lame in Jesus' name, in preaching the gospel, in casting out demons in Jesus' name, the power of God was made evident to everyone in Samaria. They knew exactly what was going on here. Verse 12 says, But when they believed, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now Simon Magus saw all this going on around him in Samaria. And now outpouring of God's grace on a populace has to be a wonder to see. You know, I've read about the Great Awakening with with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preaching in the early years of the United States, the turn of the 1700s to the 1800s. The converts, as a revival swept across the country, they said everybody was going to church. The outpouring of God could not be missed. It was like a flood covering covering the land. Such was the reaction to Philip's preaching in Samaria. And Simon the sorcerer was astonished. Verse 13 says that even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was Amazed, And we will note that that same word is used of Simon that was used about Simon. It says, even Simon believed. It says he believed, but there is a belief writ large 
all-encompassing. And then there is a belief, a head knowledge only, that does not touch the heart or engage the soul. Jesus addresses this in a parable in Matthew 13. Starting in verse 1, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And where did that take place? I told you last week. What have taken place in... (laughs) Now I've forgotten. (laughs) Persia or Decapolis. Uh, Anyway, he went out of the house and sat beside the sea and and great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Simon obviously had a seed of faith. He believed. Isn't that enough? In James 2.19, Jesus' brother is addressing the relationship between faith and works. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Simon, in Jesus' parable, was obviously a seed sown on rocky ground. He believed, but with no depth, no foundation, and he withered away. Jesus finished his parable in Matthew with these words. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Simon heard everything that was going on. But he did not have the ears to hear, he did not have the heart to perceive, and he did not have the eyes to see. So verse 13 says that even Simon believed, and after being baptized. So let's stop there. Simon believed even to the point of baptism. 
And it is too bad for Simon that baptism doesn't save. Baptism is only an outward demonstration that you say you've become a Christian and identify as such. Unfortunately, baptism doesn't make you a Christian. How many times have you seen it in your own church life that eager people come to the church as converts, they get deeply involved and asked to be baptized and they have a baptismal service and you've never, you never see them again. Or join a church and they're gone. Because I've seen it. They are seeds fallen on dry ground that spring up, then wither and die. Verse 13c says that after being baptized, he continued with Philip and Continued with Philip is only used here in Scripture. It is not what usually goes on. You know, when when John and Andrew drop everything to follow Jesus, it didn't say they continued with Jesus. Continuing, he continued with Philip. As one commenter said, uh, Simon was like a groupie of a rock band today hanging on to see what came next. He continued, but he wasn't a disciple. He continued, but he did not truly believe. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Just as the people of Samaria were amazed at the magic of Simon, so was he amazed at the miracles of God performed through Philip and much to the same effect the Samaritans gained nothing by their amazement at Simon they they gained nothing from their interaction with him for though they believed in Simon there was nothing to believe in Simon had no power their amazement at Simon their belief in Simon did nothing But in Simon's case, with Philip, though there was everything to believe in, in God's outpouring of power through Philip, Simon's belief was not in God, but in the display of power itself. The means, not the ends, were what interested Simon, the magician. We'll see in future messages exactly what it meant for Simon the magician in regards to God's kingdom and that's not for today now as I said at the beginning it is not Harry Houdini but Simon Magus that is the most famous magician of all time and this is not a good thing just as I said that it's a great thing to be named in scripture unless your name is Judas Iscariot or Ananias or Sapphira or Herod or Delilah, despite Delilah being my daughter's favorite name for a child. And on and on, Simon Simon Magus is remembered in history not for his righteousness, but for his obstruction of God's kingdom. Okay, And we find this in the writings of Hippolytus, who was an early... um, 
one of the early church fathers, Hippolytus, was from 170 to 235. We find him in the writings of Irenaeus, and we all know who Irenaeus is, and he was uh, circa 180 BC. Uh, we also, Justin Martyr, who died in 165, mentions him. Tertullian uh, in 197. And these men I just mentioned, I want to make sure you understand this, were serious historians. They were church fathers, but they were trying to get everything right. Did they get everything right? No, but it was an honest mistake if they didn't. They were trying to get these things right. Hippolytus was the uh, most important Christian theologian of his time, and he accused Simon of Gnosticism. And you know that the Gnostics were a, uh, a sect of, that believed in a secret higher knowledge beyond what was given to ordinary Christians. Irenaeus, one of the great church fathers, considered Simon the father of Gnosticism. Not just that he believed in Gnosticism, but he authored Gnosticism. And you can see that a magician who believed that they had been trained in all these things, could very well have thought that of himself, that he had a special higher knowledge, especially if he believed in his magic, as John MacArthur suggests. So, uh, Justin Martyr, himself a Samaritan, said that uh, he was considered by Samaritans as the highest god. And Simon did not dispute them. Tertullian, in his Apology, tells of Simon being honored with a statue in Rome on which was written, To Simon, the Holy God. Now, in fairness, some think that that was a mistranslation of a statue that they still have in Rome. So, But this is what was believed at that time. Was That's what... Uh, Simon Magus said, and John MacArthur, not an early church father, but close enough, that was a joke, <laughs> oh. says that his false teaching, later elaborated into full-blown Gnosticism, was to threaten and embattle the church from Paul onwards for centuries. This is Simon Magus's legacy, is disrupting the church for centuries. This then was Simon Magus, or is as close as well-intentioned ancient historians could come to him, a man who considered himself God, a man filled with magician's tricks, deceit, and pride, a man willing to subvert truth for his own gain, whatever that was, okay? but probably nothing more than to satisfy his ego. And looking around in the world today, how much harm, destruction, poverty, and whatnot is caused by man's pride, man's ego. I would go out on a limb and say all of it. Uh, Proverbs 16.8, you all know it. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. God hates Man's pride, man's haughty spirit. Everything evil stems from man's pride, from Israel rejecting God's headship and demanding a human king, to to Israel's persecution of God's prophets that we've looked at before, and, and the persecution of the church that we've seen. 
Here with Simon Magnus, pride goes before destruction. You can take this all all the way back to Adam and Eve, wanting to be like God and know about good and evil. That was purely pride at work. They wanted to be like God, just like Simon Magnus wanted to be called the power of God. Pride doesn't merely come before a fall. As we see with Adam and Eve, pride came before the fall. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot for evil to pervert the world. It takes just a little bit that is not pushed back on. It takes, it takes a pride that justifies itself in the world. Simon Magus, most famous magician of all time, I'd rather just be a simple Christian sitting in the pew and worshiping my God. Let's close in prayer.